Hi, and welcome to the Bluff Church Podcast. Each week we bring you the Sunday message from the Bluff Church in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. If you like our podcast, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment and leave a review on your favorite listening platforms on iTunes or Google Play. Your review helps other listeners find our podcast. For more information about the Bluff, we invite you to visit our website at thebluff.church or our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for the Bluff Church. If you live in the Poplar Bluff area, we invite you to come be a part of the Bluff on any Sunday at 1027 a.m. in the ballroom of the Holiday Inn. Now here's this week's message. Those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Mason Powell. I am the teaching co-pastor here at the Bluff. And if you are a guest or a visitor, we do this thing where at the beginning of every message, we take a moment to give a round of applause and appreciation to various areas in our church body that, that serve to represent Jesus. And before we jump to that particular area, let's also recognize what this week is. Because this week is also Veterans Day week. And from Someone who grew up from a long line of veterans, this is, this is something that's very special, I know, for me. I, I know all the emotions that come along with this time frame, and I know that when a veteran goes off to war, there's also the war at home for the family that is left wondering and waiting. And so right now, we want to give a, a round of applause and appreciation to all those who are veterans or are family members of veterans, because you guys are, are special. And so let's give you a round of applause for that. Thank you for your service. As well as, we also want to recognize our small group leaders. And we're preparing something really exciting that's coming in the spring, as we're going to be having a big small group launch in February with a new way of how we do things a little bit. And so for the past few months, I've had all the small group leaders over at my house on Sunday afternoons, so we can go through this and prepare ourselves for this. And so this, this is a great thing that's coming, and so we want to give a round of applause to them, as well as... All those small group leaders, some of them still had some groups that are going on. And so while they have been absent, others have stepped up in their place to help lead for the past few months. And so we want to give a round of applause for all of our small group leaders in the spring and all those who have stepped up this fall as well to help fill in the gap. So thank you very much. Well, like many people growing up, I went to some summer camps, and unlike most people who went to those summer camps, I got kicked out of a few of them um, <laughs> for uh, bad behavior, even a Christian one one time. Um, that's a story for another day. But the one camp I did not get kicked out of that I loved going to as a kid growing up was a camp called Dixieland Leadership Camp. And when you arrive, you immediately, like, it's a completely different atmosphere as soon as you arrive. 
Because when you arrive, you're immediately split off into one of four different teams. And the teams are the red team, the blue team, the green team, and the yellow team. And those teams became your family at camp. Like they were the closest bonds of the entire year. So this is really special. And I was always part of the green team. And our rivals were the red team. No one liked the red team. Like, the red team won everything, and we always came in second place. So, like, at the end of the camp, there was a big celebration, big competition, and red team won year after year after year, so we did not like them. And as well as the red team was very theatrical. And what I mean by that is the very first morning of every year, they put on this big spectacle because you have to meet at the flagpole before breakfast for announcements and and red team would always show up late because they want to have a big show and let everyone see them and all. So we really didn't like them. But I remember one year being really bad for us. You see, we were all lined up at the flagpole for, for breakfast and of course the red team weren't there and we're all waiting and all of a sudden we started to hear chanting coming in the distance. And then all of a sudden, all the high schoolers on the red team come around the corner, and they're marching in sync like a battalion of soldiers, and they're dressed like Spartan warriors. Like, I'm talking, like, they have red capes from, like, tarps they made. They have, like, uh, masks that they got at Dollar Tree. They have toy shields, and, and they have red pool noodles that we discovered were supposed to resemble swords. And, and they come marching around the corner, and they look like the 300 Spartans. And, in fact, one of their seniors jumps up on a rock, and he starts giving, like, a speech from the movie. And it's like, oh, wow, this is all really cool. And then it turned really bad for us. Because as soon as that senior got done with his speech, they screamed and then charged across the field right at my green team guys, and they proceeded to beat us with the pool noodles to the (laughs) laughter of everyone there. So for a a couple of guys who were still trying to learn each other's names, we were furious. And like cheesy comic book characters, we decided in that moment we were going to have our revenge. But we could not beat them in any of the games. All the competitions, they kept beating us. So we had to think, we have to do something to earn our pride back because they just humiliated us in front of the whole camp. So if they, the red team were going to be Spartans that year, we decided we were going to be Scotsmen, like in the movie Braveheart. Yeah, so we got like green tarp and like we made kilts out of them and we made like checker designs with Sharpie. And then like as men, like we went out there in front of the red team line and we were all dressed up. Like not only did we have our kilts, but we had like green paint all over our faces and our hair and it was all spiked up. And yes, it didn't come out for weeks later. So it was kind of fun going back to work when you have green paint all over your face, but it was cool. And so we went out there, all of us guys, arm in arm, like like men. And we started to, to dance a little Scottish jig in front of them. (laughs) I know, this is great. And to a song that we made up making fun of the red team. Like we even had one of our seniors step up on that same rock and start to quote the movie Braveheart, like a speech about freedom that he reworded to be about the red team. And so like it's all this huge spectacle and the red team is well getting red in the face because we ended it by lifting up our kilts and flashing them in front of everyone. (laughs) Don't worry, I was wearing swimming trunks. I can't vouch for the other guys, but I at least was wearing swimming trunks underneath. And so everyone's laughing, this red team, they're just all red in the face. And that was when we attacked. You see, we got about 10 feet away from them, and behind our backs, we had taken pool noodles, and we cut them in half. Because we realized not only could we hide them, but they hurt a lot more when they're short. (laughs) 
And so with the people 10 feet from us, and they're all laughing, they think, okay, this is it. We suddenly drew our pool noodles and pounced upon them, beating them. At the same time, the blue team, the yellow team come crashing in and like they're throwing water balloons and spraying Gatorade and Silly String is going everywhere. And it was fantastic. Now, I've never been in combat, but I think the, the closest I will ever get is like running through the red team's battle lines, going for the one guy who hit me and just beating him as Gatorade and Silly String and water balloons are flying all over the place. I can tell already some of you are questioning, is this the guy we want leading our youth group? <laughs> And don't worry, that's why we have leaders like Dave and Andy and Leslie and Lori, because they would never be up for anything as awesome as that day. <laughs> Looking back, as odd as it sounds, I am so happy that the red team like attacked us on that first day, because it took our team, who were all strangers who didn't know each other, and it united us as a team because we had a common goal and a common purpose. Never underestimate what the power can be achieved when you team up with someone with the same common goal, with the same enemy that you're trying to overcome. And in some ways, this has been subtly being played out in the Gospel of John for the past several weeks that we've been talking about. You see, we have looked at Jesus face against evil and darkness on his own and overcome it. And in the past few weeks, we've listened to Jesus talk about how we do the very same thing. Like as he is about to die, he knows he is but moments away from being arrested. He's trying to give this quick plan to his disciples saying, this is how you go out and represent what I have done. Like this is how you go out and do what I have done. And it is not centered upon weapons of mass destruction or even sugar high teenagers with pool noodles. It has centered upon love. Primarily that we are called to love others like Jesus has loved us. And Jesus is saying that you're supposed to go out together and do this. And by this, the darkness will fall. And last week, we talked about how there will be times where we're going to drop the ball in this. Like, we're going to mess up. We're going to say something mean to someone. We're going to be a jerk. Or we're just going to do something that's going to make us feel defeated and we remind ourselves of how Jesus is the real conqueror. He has overcome all things. And so in him, our defeats have not defeated him. And we still get to press on towards his victory, even after we've lost. But now we enter into John chapter 17, which is where we're going to be at this morning. And it is a very intimate chapter. Because it is just moments away from Jesus being arrested. And he's just given this big plan of go out, represent me by loving others like I have loved you. And now he is going to stop and pray to God. And this is a rather unique prayer because he's going to pray to God about himself, which is just mind-blowing when you think that both of them are God and somehow they're going to talk together with each other. That's something mind-blowing. But also the fact that he's going to pray for his disciples as well as you and me. So this is a really, really cool prayer, and it's going to be expressing the heart and character for, for, uh, of Jesus for God and for us, of where we are at in life and what is our purpose going forward after he has died upon the cross and been raised again. And so read with me in John chapter 17, verse 1 the beginning of this prayer, it says, when Jesus had spoken these things, meaning everything I've just summarized that we've talked about for weeks now, when he had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. When we began this journey through the Gospel of John, we saw that there are these tiny little moments where people kept coming up to Jesus and, and that he were asking him to do something. He'd always respond with saying, the time is not yet. Like we saw that first example in John chapter 2, and it's the wedding ceremony in Cana, and Jesus has his mother come up to him in a dire time and says, hey, will you basically reveal yourself as the Messiah, as the king, and, and fix this problem? And Jesus' response was to say that now is not the time to reveal himself. And we saw the same thing in, in chapter 7 when his brothers are kind of mocking him of this claim that he was making that he was a king. And he basically says the same thing. Of, the time is not yet for me to be glorified and for me to be revealed. But now things have changed. Now Jesus says this is the moment where he is about to be glorified. And he is asking God to be glorified, meaning he is asking God for the cross. Because this is what his whole purpose has been leading up to. Because humanity was in need of a savior and Jesus knew that had to be him. He knew it was the only way in which God would be considered faithful to his own promises made to, and back in the book of Genesis to Adam and Abraham, that someone had to come in and rescue humanity from our sins because none of us could do it. And so he's asking God, please glorify me and basically saying, let me go into this suffering. Let me go into this moment right here where I can be what they need in order to have a relationship again with God. And it's amazing that he is so consumed with this. Like this is all that Jesus talks about for the past several weeks is being glorified by God and in turn glorifying God. It's all he thinks about. He's consumed with living a life that is constantly pointing back to God. Even though he is God, he is so consumed with people knowing that God sent him and that God has this plan, this purpose to redeem the world and that we get to be part of it. And now he's asking, allow me to glorify others by giving them eternal life. Now, we've been talking for weeks now, what is this eternal life? It's kind of slipped in here and there throughout the Gospel of John of that this was the outcome when we have faith in what Jesus has done and who he is, that we are part of his family and therefore we get to partake of eternal life. But while we've been saying this week after week, we've never really done a good job of clarifying what is eternal life. Like, is it just like we get to live forever after we die or, or is it something more? Is it something that we just look forward to, or is it something we get to experience now? Well, Jesus is wonderful here in verse 3 that he kind of just lays it out, the, the definition of what is eternal life that he's been talking about, that he's been trying to say, this is the outcome I want for you guys, and it's this, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, Eternal life is not about getting to heaven so we can dance down some streets of gold. And I know that already that thought makes some of the Baptists here in the room a little bit nervous about the idea of dancing. Okay, but that's not what eternal life is. Eternal life is about a relationship with the God who created you and knowing Jesus Christ whom he sent. And you know why that's a good thing? Because that means we get to experience it now. Like, it's not something which we look forward to one day of experiencing eternal life. No, it means God's life is in our life now, and we live from that. Like, that is the root of everything about us, is that God's life is in our lives. 
so that we get to experience eternal life now. So this changes everything. Like this changes completely how we live as human beings because we now get to live on a new standard and a new basis that affects everything else. That's why for the past several weeks, I've been talking about this is the complete fulfillment of who you are. Like this is the most important thing about yourself that you have a relationship with the God who created you. That you have eternal life, something you get to experience now as well as in the future. Because life is all about an engagement with our environments. And so the highest form of life would have to be with the engagement with the highest form of environment. Now, if we talk about death, death is always the cessation of all interactions with environments. But death cannot touch this relationship. Because when Jesus rose from the cross, or when he rose from the grave, I mean, he conquered over death. Meaning that the relationship we have with God will never end. Like, death cannot end it. It is merely a mere stepping stone for further centuries of unlimited amount of time and potential of being able to know the God who created us. Like, this is a wonderful thing. And Jesus has invested so much time trying to get his disciples to understand this. Like, he's talked about it for years, okay, trying to get them to understand, rewire their thinking on what this eternal life is and what it means to have a relationship with with the God who created them. And so we see now, after he has succeeded in this mission, in verse 8, he says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So for three years, these, this group of men, some young, like teenagers, and some old, like good men, uh, have been following this Jesus guy, watching him do all these miracles and wonders and things like that, and he has taken that amount of time to rewire their thinking. And Jesus is finally excited that they get it, that they have this relationship with God, but he's also concerned for them. Because in this aspect of investing in them, he knows he's about to die, and it's up to them to carry on his mission. Like, this is no small task which he's asking. He's asking them to change the world. And so now in this prayer, Jesus, he's very quick to just pray to, about himself and saying, God, thank you for allowing me to glorify you, allow me to continue to do that. But he spends a long time talking about those who come after him, of his concern for his disciples, and of his worry and his love. And we see that in verse 11, which says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So despite the looming suffering that's heading his way, that's not what preoccupies Jesus. Like he already knows he's going to win on the other side. What preoccupies him are those who are coming after him. Of the troubles that are coming on their, towards them because of their relationship with Jesus. Because he knows this is not difficult. He knows, I mean, that this is difficult, that this is not easy. And so what does he pray on their behalf? Well, he prays this, verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I think I've mentioned this before. Following Jesus is not a popularity thing. 
Like the way he's asking people to do is to step into dark places like he has stepped into them and to love people and love God like Jesus has loved them. And through this, the world is going to be changed. And knowing that difficult times come ahead from them, does he, does he pray for their protection? Does he pray for their security? Does he pray even for traveling mercies as they go out to do this? No. Like, it's kind of shocking what he prays next. Listen to this. In verse 15, this is what he asks the God who created them, who loves them, and who's pursuing them. This is what Jesus asked that God to do for them in spite of what dangers come ahead for them. He's saying this, verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. How shocking it is that Jesus doesn't pray for their protection. He prays for their impact. That they go against the darkness in this world and they do not stop. When injustice is growing and seems unbeatable, that they don't quiver and cower and fear, but that together they stand against it to represent Jesus. Like this is a radical prayer because it's nothing like what we normally pray. Like when we send off someone on a mission trip and things like that, we are always concerned of God, please watch over them, make them have traveling mercies, let there not be a car wreck or anything like that. Like we are so preoccupied sometimes with protection and Jesus is not praying for protection. He is praying for impact. Saying no matter what happens to them, Father, don't let them stop. Don't let these minor little struggles keep them from their purpose of representing Jesus back to the world. So like when things are tough and we feel like we're defeated and it's so easy to say, I just want to hide back in this defeat and just give up. He is saying, please, Father, do not let them give up. Because there's so many things in this world that wants you to give up. There's so many things in this world that wants to separate us. And Jesus is saying, may they go at it together. And you know what's special about this? He wasn't just talking about the 12 men with him. He was talking about us. Because this is the radical thing. This is a special thing that God and Jesus prayed for you back to God. Like that's mind-blowing because we read it now in verse 20. It says this. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This challenge from Jesus is for us to be sent into the world. Not to cower behind four walls, but to go out and love God and love people like he has loved us. To share the gospel that in the darkness, that in the terror, that in the shame and in despair, there is hope and his name is Jesus. 
that we are called to be sent out together to do this. And we are naturally bad at this. Because if this was all upon us, if this was all in our wired thinking, it is not the way we operate. Because while we crave community, so oftentimes we do not work well in unity. Like we see that like at, at school or, or school, um, business when you have to work as a team, like no one likes working with a team, all right, on group projects. Like they're a nightmare growing up and they're a nightmare when you're in business because no one likes to work together very well because oftentimes we make it upon or all about ourselves. And so what Jesus is saying is like, I, I want them to go out together because they cannot do individually what I have done, but they can do it together. But we're bad at this. Like our world does not operate well in this. Like we see that in politics. We, we see that in, in whether it's sports or business when individuals are more interested in their own glory and success rather than the, the betterment of the team. We see that in churches that so oftentimes split over nuances of stuff and people will bounce from one church to the next because someone hurt their feelings at a different church and so I'm going to go and start my own church or I'm going to go here and I'm just going to be part of a different church body rather than dealing with the issues. And that's why we have so many different denominations, as sad as that is. And we see it as well when, when church leaders stand up upon a stage and rather than talking about the awe and wonder of Jesus and how we're supposed to be chasing after Jesus, so oftentimes we use the stage to belittle or insult other ministers and other proclaimers of the same gospel. We are not good at this. But thankfully, it's not up to us. Like, thankfully, there, there's someone else out there who, who is helping us in this regard who is the glue of what builds our unity and what our unity is around and what is our source of everything as well as the thing we're chasing after, and that is Jesus. Because if your unity is based on you or getting people to, to come along with your ideas, then it will fail. But when our unity is based on Jesus, to where we can set aside our differences and our nuances and we can pursue Jesus together and go out there and represent Jesus together, then wonderful things happen. Because together, we will accomplish more with Jesus. Together, we will accomplish more with Jesus than we will ever do individually. So us going out to represent Jesus that I've been talking about for weeks now is not solely about you. It's not an individual thing. It is a community thing in which we are all a part of, in which we are all needed. And what a wonderful time of which it is needed now because the spotlight is now upon the church in our country. I mean, we had Toby Mack's son pass away. John MacArthur bashes Beth Moore. Kanye West, shockingly of all people, comes to saving faith in Jesus and then releases a worship album, which is the number one out there right now, proclaiming that Jesus is king and people are getting saved from it. Like the eyes of the world are upon the church right now. Like regardless of what you think about these individuals and the circumstances involved, the eyes of the world is on the church right now. So they're looking at how do we operate? Who are we? What message are we proclaiming? We were made for such a time as this. What better opportunity do we have right now to love God and love people? 
of seeing that this is not an individual thing, but together in this gathering as a family, we go out and we get the chance to represent Jesus together. Where we can lean upon each other when we're struggling in this regard. Where we feel like, hey, I, I feel tempted to just give up because this person over here is just making it so difficult or because of this circumstances. Together we can remind ourselves, don't give up. Because together we will accomplish more with Jesus than we will individually. Individually we're defeated, but together there is no limit to what we can accomplish. Let me share a story to try to prove this point. There once was a guy named Josh. By all appearances, Josh grew up in the perfect Midwestern American dream family. Two parents still happily married. He had a little sister. Every single Sunday, his family would drag him to church. His father was a deacon. His mother ran a prayer ministry in church. So they were prominent people in the community. And it would seem like everything was perfect. But nothing could be further from the truth. You see, being the oldest sibling, Josh oftentimes suffered emotional and verbal abuse from his father and sometimes even physical. And this was kind of confusing to Josh because he would see his father sit in messages week after week and hear all these messages about being full of love, of God's love for us and how we are in turn supposed to show that love and about mercy and grace. But Josh never saw that growing up from his father. Instead, he saw a man who, who would smile on Sunday mornings and lead a Bible study and seem to know all this stuff but not represent it back home. And Josh's mother would try to do her best to try to, to stop her husband from acting like this, but she was actually more concerned with keeping up appearances to the community that they were a perfect family without any problems. So she never reached out for help. And all of this infuriated Josh. And he swore off God, and he swore off the church, and he wanted nothing to do with Christians because all he saw were judgmental, hypocritical people. And this broke his mother's heart, and she committed to trying to pray for him all the time, but it only made Josh more angry when his father didn't care. When his father blamed someone else or blamed Josh rather than taking the blame for himself. And so it seemed like a blessing when the two moved away. And so years later, when Josh's father dies, Josh refused to go to their funeral. Because the last thing he wanted was to hear people praise how good a man his father was when he never saw that. Decades go by, and Josh is no longer the young little boy. He's a rough man. No more for his aggression, his drunkenness, his foul language, his one-night stands and, and stints in jail all around town. He's not a good man. And he takes a job with long hours that exhaust him, and he's kind of a loner. And so he's kind of shocked when the people that he worked with are actually kind of interested in him, that they want to be friends with him. So imagine his disappointment when he finds out they're Christians. And he's expecting to hear all the judgments he grew up hearing all the time. But he's kind of surprised by them because they don't seem to judge him. In fact, they, they seem to enjoy inviting him out to dinners, to ball games. Like they, they enjoy hanging out with him and he starts to enjoy hanging out with them. And it's strange because no other Christian has ever treated him like this. No other Christian has ever loved him like Jesus has loved them, as they so oftentimes say. 
That this is what sparks him when his sister reaches out years later because she's a devout Christian and she's getting married and she's invited him to church, like, or not to church, but to her wedding. Like this is what sparks him to be interested in going to, to that wedding. And when he's there, he, he kind of runs into his mom who is overjoyed to see him after 10 years of not communicating with him. And she tells him about how much she loves him and how Jesus loves him and how she's still praying for them. And he's a bit shocked by this because he's thinking uh, that she gave up on him. And Josh, he kind of comments all cynical. He doesn't know how to respond to this. So he makes some harsh comments. He gets drunk at the reception and he leaves. But something is stirring in his mind of how these Christians are reaching out to him. They're not pushing him away, but they're, they're actually showing him love. And so he goes back to work and he finally accepts that invite from his friends to go to church. And then four months later, he goes again. And then eventually four month gaps become three months and then two months and then once a month. And Josh finds he, he actually seems to like the people. Like they don't judge him for how he dresses or how he acts or, or even sometimes he says a little bad word every now and then that he doesn't know he's not supposed to say or that everyone makes him think about and all. And so he, like, he seems like this is a warm, welcoming group that's actually excited that I'm here. And so Josh joins a small group. And in that group, he actually develops the first time significant relationships in his life of people who, who love him and want him to get to know God. And so he starts to, to meet with them, do Bible studies with them, volunteer with them from time to time. And by this point, Josh is attending church every single Sunday. And then one Sunday, the pastor stands up and, and gives a gospel message about Jesus. And Josh is sure that it was delivered by God for him. And so he comes and he gets saved that day. And it's a wonderful thing. And everyone's cheering. And now years later, Josh is reconnected with his mom and his sister. He leads a Sunday school class for little kids. He runs a small group ministry. And there are people talking about him being an elder. Now, hearing that story, who do you think is responsible for leading Josh to, to Christ? Like, who was used by Jesus? Was it the mother who never gave up praying for her son? Was it the co-workers who were Christians, who were kind to him, who invested in getting to know him and being friendly with him? Was it the sister who took a chance on inviting him out to a Christian event, knowing what was going to happen? Was it the warm, welcoming church? Was it the small group that, that loved on him and developed close relationships with him? Was it the pastor who just happened to give the right message? Or do you see that every little piece was used by God and that no piece was more important than the other one? Like the pastor's not giving credit for winning Josh to Christ. No, it was involvement of everyone. If anything, the pastor just got to reap the rewards of everyone else's hard work. Like, that's the joy of my job right here is I just get to reap the rewards of your guys' hard work because we're all a part of this together because Jesus wants us all on the same team of working together. So if we go out and, and people ask or their perception of, of Christianity, or Christianity or of Christ through us is that we oftentimes just complain about other Christians 
or about the church or about whatever, and that's all they know about us and not what, how we talk about how great Jesus is and how excited that we are, that we're chasing after him, and that there are other people we get to worship with in this regard of moving towards Jesus. Like if, if people don't hear this side, the other side is all that they'll ever know. But imagine what a testimony we can be if we spend more time working together proclaiming the name of Jesus than, than putting each other down. We're trying to go at it alone and thinking this is all on my shoulders when it's not. But we're a team. Which is why here at the Bluff, we've got small groups, we've got ministry teams. We Every single Sunday, we take moments to give round of applause to different areas in the church because this is not an individual endeavor. This is not on me and Dave to accomplish this. This is on all of us to go out and represent Jesus, to love God and love people like Jesus has loved us. And the only means by which we can do that is if Jesus is the one that unites us, if we can be clear on who he is together. So it doesn't matter what, how you come in or where you're coming from or how you're dressed in this place. We are glad that you are here. We are glad that you have come to this place and our hope and dream is that you walk away knowing that, that God loves you and our desire is that you might come to love God and love people. That's what matters to us. So you can come and dress however you like. You can come in late even with all your little distractions even, but we want you to know that God loves you and we want to see you go out there and represent Jesus in your circles where we cannot be, but you are where you might be the only showing of Jesus for someone else. And that heart desires when you come back here, you're encouraged, you're reminded when you look to your left and your right, you are not doing this alone. That we will not be defeated individually because together we're stronger. Together we will accomplish more with Jesus. So in a little bit here, we're gonna um, have the band come up after I pray. And I want to challenge you guys, as you go out this week, to love God and love people like Jesus has loved you, but to remember this is not just on your shoulders, that there are others in this room, others even of different denominations, yeah, I said it, <laughs> who love Jesus as well, who we can partner together with and move in the same direction of seeing God's kingdom grow. You're not alone in this. We are doing this together. So let's pray. Jesus, like you, I don't want to ask for, for protection from evil. I ask that us as a church, that whatever is thrown at us, whatever evil and darkness there is, that we do not stop. We don't let it defeat us. We don't let us stop us from what you have asked us to do of representing you to a lost world so that lives can be changed and this community can be impacted by your gospel. But we do ask that you help us to do it together. That you remind us that this is not an individual thing. This is not on my shoulders. It's not on Dave's shoulders. It is on all of our shoulders together to represent you. And we ask that you might be the glue that unites us more than preferences, more than style, more than anything else, Father, that you are what unites us and you are leading us through the dark. What a joy it is to know 
that victory is already assured. And we go ahead, not stopping when times come that are hard, when we feel kicked and pushed and defeated. We know together we have the victory because you have the victory and you promise it for us. So don't let us stop. It's in your name I pray. Amen. You call me out upon the waters, the great